Everybody, and welcome back to Mugabout at Movies, returning for a new set of episodes. Of course, Mugabout at Movies is returning at kind of an awkward time for movies, considering that all movie theaters are closed in the country, meaning anime screenings coming out that were planned are postponed for the time being. However, we have a few episodes banked that we've been recording in the past couple of months, so over the next few weeks, you'll be hearing episodes on Tokyo Godfathers, My Hero Academia, Heroes Rising, and The Wonderland. And in addition to that, we will most likely be recording an episode on Violet Evergarden, Eternity in the Auto Memory Doll, which we saw in theaters, but are probably going to review it now since it's going to be dropping on Netflix. As for the future of Ad Movies, in terms of other episodes we might do in the next couple of months, that remains to be seen, and actually, we'd like to leave it up to you guys. What would you like to see us cover? Movies on Netflix? Movies from anywhere else? Heck, maybe we could dig into movies from our personal collection. We may leave a poll in the episode description that you can go vote on to help us select some of the next movies we'll be covering on Ad Movies in future weeks. But for now, in the time being, you have a cool set of episodes to look forward to over the next couple weeks, starting off with our review of Tokyo Godfathers, fresh off of its theatrical screening earlier in March by G-Kids and Fathom Events with a brand spanking new English dub. Enjoy Christmas in March! Everybody and welcome back to Mugabouts at Movies, a show where we don't talk smack about movies, we celebrate them. And yes, you can definitely believe we are celebrating this film, the re-release of Tokyo Godfathers. It's a Christmas miracle to see this film be re-licensed, redistributed, dubbed, redubbed, and released into theaters. A Christmas miracle in March indeed, wouldn't you say, we Lord GTC? Yeah, it's weird watching a Christmas movie in March, but hey, I'm not complaining. It's Tokyo Godfathers. That's right. Any occasion to watch this movie is one to celebrate for sure. This is a movie that you should be watching all year round because it's one of Satoshi Kon's best. Agreed. Satoshi Kon, the late, the great, the brilliant. This movie is his least psychological, his least dark but it may as well be his most human. Wouldn't you agree? I'd probably say so. I mean, if you went from, like, this to, say, Perfect Blue, that would be some serious whiplash. It must have been a whiplash from his fans at the time. This is his third theatrical film after Perfect Blue and Millennium Actress, which is referenced in the movie itself when they pass by a convenience store very early on in the movie, and you see plastered on the windows of the convenience store. On the left, the poster for Perfect Blue, and on the right, the poster for Millennium Actress, a very amusing sight gag, of which there are many great sight gags in this movie. I don't know how I didn't notice those posters the last time I watched the movie. Yeah. <laughs> like, they're right there, and I'm just like, oh, 
oh, this makes sense. It really does make sense. I mean, this was my first time to notice that too, and I noticed a lot more sight gags this time around. Ola Satoshi Kone's films definitely benefit from we watches because he imbues a lot of little details in there, and definitely the staff took painstaking attention to put in those ridiculous details. There was this great documentary clip at the end of the screening of this movie where they included a section where the art director, Nobutaka Ike, kind of explained how they did location hunting for this movie, really basing the images we see in the film, the settings off of real locations in Tokyo and recreating them, and also trying to create an environment that felt true to life, not to glamorize the city, but show the beauty in the dinginess of it, which includes the trash bags, making sure that they get the quality of the trash bags, the fact that they're translucent, you can see through them and how the light shines off of them, getting all those details accurate, and even the paying attention to the lighting of the vending machines, and how that reflects on people, and how that reflects on the streets. Like, a lot of beautiful attention to detail is placed in this movie. Yeah, I definitely agree. I mean, one thing I think that definitely goes unnoticed about the film is that it is kind of darkly lit at times, but it is because it's relying a lot on that kind of, like, realistic lighting. Like you yes, said, the vending machines. Light. Yeah, like the vending machines, the overhead street lights. It all just kind of feels like they're recreating Tokyo. Yes. It's a simulacrum of a real environment. Yeah, and I think, like, the snow especially, like... Just thinking about, I was kind of reminded about this too, like, because we watched Weathering with You a few months ago, and that had, like, similar tribulations where, like, when you have, like, kind of an environmental element like that that's constantly there, like, you really have to kind of build the film from the ground up with all these different elements and take so much effort just to put these tiny little details. Like, I remember in, like, the documentary at the end, they were talking about how, like, they had to layer the snow yeah. piece by piece to make it kind of have this unnatural, or not not unnatural, They wanted to like, make it more natural. More natural. Snow is different gradients. Yeah, so I, I, think, I think I meant to say, it like, uneven. uneven. Yeah, uneven, not unnatural. It, it made it more more natural by having it be even or uneven. Uh, I'm getting my words mixed up tonight, but yeah, so it was just really cool just uh, hearing them talk about that and also just kind of, if you're looking at a lot of the environments in Tokyo Godfathers, just the little tiny like steps and footprints of all the characters, like it's all there. Like, you definitely can tell this is a world that's lived in. Yes, this is a truth that more viewers should pay attention to in animation, but every decision made in an animated film production is deliberate and for a very good reason. And the films with Satoshi Kon are a great example of that, of all the very careful decision-making to make real, authentic environments that have mood, ambiance, and communicate the emotion of the scene. Yeah, I, I 100% agree. Yes. And it was such a treat to see this film in theaters. Of course, my first exposure to this film was seeing the sub on Crackle a couple of years ago. And I believe it's still on Crackle, although you may not realize it 
but it's there if you look for it, and it loads very slowly, so I don't know if you can actually still watch it. I think everything in Crackle loads yeah, slowly. Yeah, I think it's just because Sony's video service is very poorly run, maybe kind of like an afterthought, kind of like how they originally released this movie as like an afterthought. When they originally acquired it in 2003, they tried to have it qualify for an Oscar. They failed at it. They dumped it on DVD four months later in April 2004, and that DVD is long out of print. And of course, it's been on streaming services, again, Crackle, and it was also on Amazon Prime Video for a time. But readily accessible, this movie was not. Yeah, it's kind of weird. Like, you definitely can see Tokyo Godfathers all over the place. Like, it's, like you said, it's been streaming for quite a while to the point where you can almost forget that, hey, it's technically, it hasn't had a home video release in a good long time, let alone a theatrical release since, like, it first came out. Indeed, and we definitely have to thank G-Kids for, in recent years, doing the work to acquire the rights to release the films of Satoshi Kon back in theaters and onto home video. I believe Sony still has the master rights of his works or whatnot. There's still pages for them on their website, but they acquired the rights to actually distribute and do something with the films, where Sony had just sat on their hands and not done anything with them. Yeah, like, G-Kids has, like, all of them now except for, like, Paprika, right? That's the last one, and that's the one I bet they're gonna get their hands on next. Yeah. Complete their journey with. So I think Paprika, the Blu-ray, that's still in print, so if you really want to watch it, you can. Paprika is definitely the most easy to find of the Sony-released Satoshi Kun films. Ironically, it's the only one of his films that I haven't watched. Really? I have seen all the directorial works of Satoshi Kon, and I wonder what is my favorite. I think Tokyo Godfathers may very well be, because I've seen it the most times, and I remember pretty much everything that happens in it, unlike some of his other works, where they're all great, but some of the details... You know, if you were to ask me, like, every plot point, I wouldn't have been able to recite it to you. But with Tokyo Godfathers, even before re-watching this film, I would have been able to tell you everything that happened in the beginning to end, pretty much. That's funny, because, like, I completely forgot the twist of this film. Did you? <laughs> yeah. You mean about Sachiko? Yeah, I completely forgot the whole thing about her not being the real mother. <laughs> I'm like, oh... Oh, that's how they get to the really climactic part of this film. Now I remember. There's so much great foreshadowing in the film for all these turns, though. Cone is really great at laying the seed work for later reveals, for character-building moments. Yeah, for sure. Like, just, like, from how the characters move and react to certain things, like, there's all these, like, little seeds planted. Like, I forget the old man's name again. Gin? Yeah. Yeah, like, um, Gin's daughter, when she first shows up, and they're talking about the lone shark that got, like, shot on, like, the TV monitor in the hospital, and the moment they mention him, like, she immediately turns and she pauses at the screen. Yeah, because she recognizes that guy. Yeah, it's like little things like that where, 
Like, the first time you're watching a film, you might not necessarily notice it. It might just be, like, her reacting to the fact that, oh, it's this guy who got, like, shot. That's kind of a big deal. But, no, it's because, like, she she literally knows this guy. Well, also, there's the fact that there are three Kyokos in the film, all daughters. And it's basically all a build-up to the reveal that Gin's daughter is also a Kyoko. <laughs> yeah, but, that's like, right. Getting introduced to the Kyoko that is the mob boss's daughter when they attend her wedding, then when he's lying in the alleyway after being beaten up and brutalized and calling out about how he wants to see Kyoko again. A lot of building up to that big reveal. Yeah, for sure. There's just so many little details that Cone puts in these films. It's just so great. Like, I feel there are a few films that you can really watch again and again and still pick up new things every time. And I think Satoshi Kon's films really are kind of the best example of doing that to the fullest extent. Most definitely. There are definitely consistent themes and motifs in his works, and that's especially evident in this film. One motif I noticed that is not necessarily the most thematically deep, but it's a fun little Easter egg gag, is that the... Numbers 12-25 are very frequent appearances in the movie. It's on the license plate of the car that the Brazilian shooter hijacks, or rather takes, when he kidnaps Miyuki. And it is also on the clock in Sachiko's abandoned apartment. And it is also the address of Sachiko and her husband's new place. Among other places where it shows up in the movie. There's also another numerical motif of 1111. Also referencing a date, in this case, New Year's Day. Because this film pretty much takes place from Christmas Day to New Year's Day. Right, I hadn't even thought about that. Yeah, I guess like one thing for me is like I never really realized how many days technically pass in this film. Like, Mm -hmm. you gotta remember it, like, yeah, it involves Christmas. So like, you kind of say, okay, it's probably like around Christmas, but nah, it's like really the entire holiday season. Like, it starts on Christmas and goes all the way to New Year's, which is like, huh, that's quite a long time. It is, but definitely many nights pass during the film. Yeah, so, so like, when you think about it, it, it makes sense. It's just, like, something, like, you don't re- you aren't really, like, reminded of right away, especially since they don't really mention New Year's. Well, I guess, like, they the do, bell, the bell in, rings at the end. Yes, I mean, they visit the shrine to bring in the New Year, but also in Hana's haiku, when she gives away Kyoko to Sachiko, she's, like, commenting on the fact that on the last day of the year, so... That scene happens on New Year's Eve. Oh yeah, that's true. I just like a part of it's like yeah, they don't they don't really make a big deal of it. It's just kind of like oh yeah, it's New Year's. Mm. <laughs> so it's a fun week long holiday excursion for these characters. Yeah, but the huge strength of this film is definitely it's focused on marginalized and mistreated communities. Specifically, the homeless community, the LGBTQ community, and the immigrant communities. I mean, that is very much re-emphasized and enforced during the film. Basically, the way homeless people are treated, you know, is very 
very disheartening, but also very unfortunately true to life. In the fact that they are looked down upon, dismissed, they are treated with disdain and contempt. The train scenes where everyone is holding their nose because they smell and looking at them, glaring at them with such hateful eyes. And this happens again at several points during the movie. Like at the convenience store where there's that couple that like looks at them just sitting on the bench and they just like scowl at them and then leave. And then Hana's like, oh, what a nice couple. I wonder what they think of us. It's so tragic. Hana's such a kind-hearted, good-spirited character. And she really believes in the best of other people. But yeah, alas, she is treated very poorly by so many as well, unfortunately, because of her status as a trans woman. Yeah, I, there's a lot of tough scenes in yeah, this movie. a lot of infuriating scenes. Like, later in that convenience store, when, you know, they're just sitting on the bench, and then the store clerk is, like, going to them saying, Hey, you know, other customers want to sit there. And they're commenting, What other customers? There's only one other guy in here. But that's the point. It's like, he wants those guys out because, you know, they're homeless people. Like, he's discriminating against them, and he's... Like, he's not giving them a break. Like, just one act of kindness he could give them is allowed him to just be there on that bench. But, again, just mistreating these people. And, like, of course, that guy, the customer in that convenience store, just goes off on them, telling them to get out, being a total jerk-ass. And then, like, tries to fight Gin in the street later. Yeah... Oh, to say nothing about probably the most horrific scene in the movie is, of course, when those teenagers, like, beat up Gin and this old man who's just sleeping. That's what I was going to mention. I mean, he was dead at that point, but they didn't know that. He thought it was just... They thought that he was just sleeping and they were going to beat him to death. That that scene is just so hard to watch. It's like... But sadly, it's true to life. It's a, it's a thing that actually happens in Tokyo that Cohn was highlighting, showing the horror of by showing just the casual attitudes of the kids who are going around and cruelly beating up these homeless people who are just minding their own business, just trying to live their own lives. Yeah, it's like... It reflects a contempt for people who don't fit in or conform to society. And a contempt and unwillingness to empathize with those who have been suffering, marginalized. Yeah, like it's it really I think shows kind of the cruelty that just your average person is capable of. And it's like the whole thing that really sticks out to me in that scene is like you see that one guy just like calling up one of his friends and like, hey, let's go to a bar after we're done beating up these two. It's like Again, casual they, cruelty. They aren't even thinking about what they're doing. They're just like, okay, yeah, this is fun. Beating up homeless people is fun. They're not treating them as human beings. They're treating them literally like garbage, and it's just disgusting. Yeah. But unfortunately, that's how people are treated every day, the homeless community. Yeah. And, you know, I lived in New York for many years, and I can tell you that the attitudes that... The train goers have towards homeless people, you know, in terms of holding up their noses, like reacting with disdain and contempt, uh, very, very real. Uh, I feel that's like in every city too. Even in Minneapolis, you see that like there's kind of this underlying sense that people don't 
view the homeless as ordinary people. Like, they try to not even acknowledge their existence. Yeah. And that that is a very, very problematic feeling when you become aware of it. It's like, we're literally just discriminating against this, like, group of, like, marginalized people that are just trying to survive day by day. And as the movie illustrates, there are many different circumstances in which someone could fall into homelessness that are oftentimes out of their control and oftentimes very tragic. Like, a lot of people legitimately are just suffering and they can't go back to their homes. They don't have homes to go back to. I do feel that Cone sort of undercuts it in this movie with our trio of main characters because... As the film progresses, we do find out that, oh, that they do have homes to come back to. They have, like, families who are, like, welcoming of them and want them back. But the point is that oftentimes the people who fall into homelessness, you know, they can't go back. They really don't have homes or families. They don't have the opportunity to, you know, earn a living and they are trying their hardest every day to just survive, to barely scrape by to survive. Yeah, I think in many ways, our main trio in Tokyo Godfathers are kind of representative of the lucky ones. The ones that do have a chance to really survive. Right, I mean, that's while, the big... like While, like, the majority are really kind of like that old man yeah. that just dies in the film. Like, yeah, I mean, the old man is the most important person in that regard. Because he would have died alone without anyone to care for him if it wasn't for Gin taking care of him during his last moments. Like, he's the biggest example of someone who really had nothing else in his life. No one else. Nowhere to go. Whereas our trio of main characters, ultimately, they are able to reconnect with their families through the course of the movie. Hana with her mother and her compatriots at the hostess club. And then Gin with his daughter. And at the end, Miyuki with her father. But... The reason why they couldn't go back to those people and their homes, or the reason why they felt they couldn't, is related to another theme of the movie, which is shame. Like, for different reasons, they all felt a deep sense of shame that prevented them from returning home. Because of something they did that they felt was their fault, and they felt they couldn't face their families again. And... In all but, I feel, Gin's cases, they're for very sympathetic, you know, understandable reasons, which is reasons they're not in control of, or rather, situations escalated to the point where, you know, they lost themselves and did something regrettable that they couldn't really face, and they thought was kind of cataclysmic, but really was not in the eyes of their family and lesbians, but they just didn't realize that. Like, throughout the film, Yuki believes that if she reunites with her father, her father's going to be mad at her. He's going to want to arrest her because of what she did. And, you know, she did a pretty severe thing. She stabbed her dad. Like It's I, just the flesh. <laughs> yeah, I listened to an analysis of this film a long time ago that was... Very much in Yuki's corner and said, and kind of pinned all the blame on her dad, which I think is a little missing the point. Now, her, let's not uh, confuse things. Her dad was part of why Miyuki 
did what she did because as it's described through that scene, her dad was not really considerate of her, didn't seem to pay her much attention, and he did get rid of her cat. He wasn't really considering her feelings. Now, of course, Yuki did something that someone should not do in that situation and which was violent and, there's uh, a big difference between getting upset and yelling at someone and getting upset yelling at someone and stabbing them yeah so miyuki did kind of commit a crime she did do something like pretty you know severe but like the big thing is that you know it's very difficult to work through those feelings at a young age so in another circumstance, uh, someone else, someone just like Miyuki, you know, would not have a place to go back to. It's very lucky that her father is very, you know, forgiving and repentant even. Like, he wants to find her. He's concerned and worried about her. So there's optimism there. There's hope that they can reconnect, reforge their family. Yeah, and I think that's why in the film... They don't spend too much time on what exactly happened between mm. Miyuki and her father, and more on. Well, they they pretty clearly they, 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 they don't they don't give you like okay like a full like, structural timeline. They have that one scene that the gives one you, scene's all like, you need. Yeah, yeah, that's all you need. They don't try to dwell on it. Necessarily. I mean, it's, they, it's similar to the Hana scenes. Like we get her yeah. background. We get that she fell into homelessness because her husband passed away, and she. Just, you know, couldn't. Yeah, I mean, what what I'm saying, though, is they give you the bare minimum that you need to know and then focus more on what it actually means. Yeah, basically. Gin's case is more complicated than Hana's or Miyuki's because in many respects, like, what he did was very much his fault. But also, he is a victim of dependency, of addiction, gambling addiction, and alcoholism. So this also ties into another theme of the film, which is how society often fails the mentally ill. We ignore their problems until it escalates and they do something regrettable. In this case, Gin fell into homelessness and just never returned home. And in Sachiko's case, she pushed herself to the point where she was about to commit suicide. And earlier than that, she kidnapped a baby and thought she convinced herself that she was that baby's mother. So, again, that, again, ties into the fact that how society kind of mistreats and kind of ignores that there are many communities who are suffering under the weight of problems of a society that's not accommodating to them. Yeah. I mean, that's, I mean, it's sort of explored a little bit with the Brazilian community. I mean, we only see the one guy and his wife. But, you know, we get a sense that they are also not very well off. I mean, they're in part of a gang. And I that's probably a result of discrimination and lack of opportunities, even, perhaps. It's not too explicit, but it is also another factor in Cohn's exploration of different marginalized groups in society and how they are treated. I mean, the fact that that character was described as a foreigner, we don't really know if he was a foreigner, but the fact that he had different skin than a Japanese person, like the media was ready to just label that character as a foreigner. Yeah, I mean, 
It's like just these unconscious biases that people have towards those who are different and those who don't conform to conventional roles and places in society. Yeah, and I think that really does come down to the whole, like you said, it's really kind of the subconscious like assumptions that we make about people that are different from us. Yeah. Tokyo Godfathers is one of those films where like it's not just throwing all this in your face blatantly. It's there. And it's there and it has a lot of depth to it. Yeah. Um, and this film con humanizes that con humanizes those that are frequently dismissed in a lot of pop culture media, especially of the time. People in these communities. Yeah. I'd oh. say, like, so much of this is still relevant today, though. Like, like we said, like, in the cities, we you still see this kind of treatment of homeless people. Even a lot of the casual transphobia that you see in this film, too. Oh, yeah. Is very much still present today. I mean, it doesn't shy away from it. As sympathetic and as wonderful as the character of Hana is, again, it... It's not a society that is kind to her. Gin is not often very kind to her. One thing I am very grateful for in this new translation is that they abstain from using harsher slurs. But they still communicate the idea that Gin does not respect her identity and is making rude jokes and comments at the expense of her queerness. Yeah, well, one little detail I liked regarding Hana and how people talk to her is that slowly throughout the film, you see Jin and Yuki start to actually start using the correct pronouns with her. Yes, that is a good... And even the doctor, the doctor uses female pronouns. Yes, there are... Sprinkles of kindness in there, and there is a great arc with Hana's found family. And that's another aspect of the film, is that it's all really about found family. Like, all these characters, they have become separated from the families. They feel they can't go back. They find community and family in each other. And that's kind of the whole point of the film as well. Like, ultimately, there is hope for them to return to their former families, but they've really found new family in each other. And so that's bond, that strength of that relationship, you get a sense by the end of the film that that will endure no matter what direction these characters go in. But again, this point is also emphasized in the scene where Yuki is imagining Hana as her mother and Gin as her father and like them all being a family. Like it's, it's kind of very readily made clear what the idea behind this trio of characters are. Yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. I will say, again, in regards to Hana, that I think she was such a progressive representation of a trans character, especially for her time. Sadly, again, in the original Sony translation, there was a lot of mistreatment of that character in the subtitles in terms of being misgendered and being referred to by harsh slurs, but G-Kids got it right, not only with a much kinder translation that still got the points he needed to across, but also by casting a trans actress to play the part of Hana, which was something not even done in the original Japanese version of the film. And don't get me wrong, I really like the original Japanese actor for Hana, but 
the new actress of Hana in the dub, Shakina Nathak, was superbly excellent, especially impressively so because this was her first voiceover role ever. I mean, she is kind of, you know, a veteran of television shows. I mean, she's been in Who's Difficult People and Amazon's Transparent Music Hall finale. She did a one-minute show or a one-woman show called Manifest Pussy. So she's, you know, a veteran actress and she's a trans activist as well. But it's really nice to have the role of Hunter reclaimed by an actual trans woman who has the lived experiences to communicate her character and provide a little more authenticity emotionally to the character, which may have not necessarily been there with the original performance, especially really hit me hard. The emotions channel during the scene where she was describing the story of the blue ogre and red ogre, and... You know, just kind of the sense of pensive sadness in that scene. But also in the scenes where she's lamenting the fact that she wishes she could be a mother. And, you know, sometimes being with your biological family is not always the best. And she's contemplating about her own mother and how she would have been disappointed in her if she saw her today. You know, it's just so many moments like that. Felt a lot realer, truer, authentic to me, just with the context of knowing that this was a character that is being voiced by a trans actress. Mm, yeah, and it's, it's rare because you don't get that often. Like, trans representation both on screen and behind the scenes. Yeah, it's, re it's really nice to see a character that is very openly trans be represented by a trans person. And I, I'm glad she could took that extra step to do that. Cause like you could have just casted anyone in that role. And I don't think a lot of people would have really made a fuss about it necessarily. Cause I feel like there's just an underlying assumption that it, that type of stuff wouldn't happen, especially since they're, I feel like we don't usually hear about a lot of trans uh, members in the voice acting community, sadly. Well, um, G-Kids made effort to find someone. Yeah, and the, that's that's the big point here. And it's like, yeah. I mean, the fact that they took that effort and really tried to make that representation correct is mm -hmm. fantastic. And they found someone who is right for the character. I mean, it's not just careless, the thought they put into the casting of this film. Like, they found someone who really connected emotionally with the character of Hana and really was able to bring out that character in such a wonderful way. Yeah, for sure. I mean, G-Kids really puts other certain monolithic entertainment companies to shame in terms of representation, I will say. Another movie was released in the theaters within the same week as this theatrical release that also had some buzz about... Some promotion that emphasized, oh, how progressive our representation Oh, it took me, it took me a few seconds to, to like, figure out what company you're talking about. Partly because I completely forgot about that film already. Yeah, let's move onward to another topic, then. Oh my god. On the subject of mental illness, and really on the subject of not getting involved 
with other people's problems, like ignoring people in need. Like we have this whole scene about the neighborhood of where Sachiko and her husband used to be and how they gossiped about, you know, how abusive their relationship was, but they never stepped in to help. Like they just kind of sat back and watched from the sidelines as this relationship spiraled out of control and became a very bad situation. And uh, Sachiko's husband, too, did not pay attention to her and respond to, like, her needs and what was clearly, you know, a mentally unstable, you know, person and get her the help that she needs. And that almost led her to taking her own life. I mean, and stealing a baby. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. It's really, I think, one of those things where it's like... It's like, again, ties into this idea of people want to ignore problems. And they want to ignore people who are suffering or in need of help. And that's what makes our trio main character so great, and Hana especially, is that she sees this child in need and she takes it upon herself to raise it by herself. She doesn't just pass off the problem. She doesn't just leave the child to the police. Like, she takes ownership of that child's well-being and then the three of the main characters go off in a search to reunite her with her real parents and rescue her when that baby is in trouble. Sachiko. <laughs> yeah. In terms of casting on the subject of Sachiko, one thing I really enjoyed was Kirk Torton as her husband. I don't remember his name. Uh, I'm just going to call him Donnie for now. Oh my god. And Man, when they were describing just, like, the circumstances of, like, how she just, like, left suddenly after a fight they had and was going to go, like, saying, like, I'm going to go be with my baby, I just had to imagine, like, how that scene must have played out for that deadbeat guy. I bet that one night he came home and he was like, oh, you know, I saw my friends today, and she was like, oh, what did they say? And he said, oh, I sh my friend said I should get a job. Could you believe that? And then she got mad at him and was like, you're such a bum. And then he was like, hey, I, you know, I'm going to learn guitar. And I'll be a super guitar You're literally star. just listening like, to a bubble of And, and she was like, you're bubble. such a bum. You don't even play guitar. That's just a stick of butter. And you don't put it in the refrigerator, so it stinks. And then she leaves him. But I bet that, you know, he realizes his mistake at the end. I'm sure that now he's going to go get a real job. He's going to try it for the hair hunt troops. He's going to play oh his <laughs> a stick of unsalted butter my... and sing, Old Man Siaster had a farm, e -I -I My biggest mistake was not realizing right away that you were going to try to recap the entire I just hope that skin. he does not encounter the bird brain when he goes to find out a real job. I hope he doesn't feel crushed, beaten, stop believing in himself. Someone ban Lum for watching <laughs> Boba Bo, please. <laughs> Look, Kirk Torden's greatest role ever is Don Patch. And whenever I hear his voice, I'm gonna think of Don Patch. And I mean, same. Like, he, he was on Demon Slayer in a recent episode, and when he showed up, I just was imagining Don Patch being cut up by Rui. Right, I want to replace the scene with that character. I don't even know what that character's <laughs> name is Yasuo. But I want to replace that character 
in the film now with Don Patch, and it would be just really funny to me to see how the film plays out if you just replace that character with Don Patch in this place. Someone do but that. Speaking of that character, I mean, that character is also an important parallel to Gin because, again, Gin ran out of his family. He incurred, you know, a bunch of deaths and just, you know, left them behind. He kind of escaped because he couldn't handle the pressure and just succumbed to his own addictions. And again, I think also a part of Gin's character is that he's mentally ill and he's a chronic habitual liar as well. And like, which. Remembering that fact, and I was laughing up at his lies towards the beginning of the film when he was telling his first sob story to Hana about, like, how he used to be uh, a pro-cyclist, and, you know, her her daughter, his daughter was sick, and he couldn't win a race because he threw it, and then her daughter, you know, passed away. And I'll race until I die. And I'll race with the other <laughs> racers. <laughs> I'll race with Pompers. Yeah, I, oh, I want to place Gin with Coach McGurk now, too. Just to place all the characters with characters from other series, except for Hana. Hana's the one character we keep. Because you can't replace Hana. She's too iconic. To the th- and too integral yeah. to the film. She's the heart of the we film. We can't replace the queen. I mean, she's the center of the, the film because her unwavering belief is what creates the miracle at the end. Where, you know, she is almost a, is given the pretense of being like an act of God with, you know, light shining, like this angelic image happening as, you know, it's just like a complete miracle of like her being able to like gently lift herself down to the ground because of. Some sort of flag, is that it? You know, something, I forget exactly. Mm-hmm. It was like a banner. Yeah, a banner, exactly. And like, yeah, then the updraft from the wind, like, breaks the fall, basically. Basically, yes. So, it's because of that character's unwearing belief that she's rewarded, like that, at the end. So again, how is like, the essential character of the film, in terms of, like, its themes and emotional core. But, Gin is also another character who's important because he has a lot of growth in the film. In terms of, like, growth, he probably grows most from where he starts out as to where he is at the end, where you get the sense that he is now in a place where he can start to change. Because by encountering Yasuo and seeing a reflection of the person he used to be, and also encountering that old man and seeing a vision of what he could become, like, he starts to realize that he needs to empower himself to change who he is, and he can't stay complacent in his situation, which is not something that a lot of people in Gin's situation can do, and I don't want to get that confused, because Cohen is very clear that a lot of homeless people just are not able to escape from their life because they're just either not in the right mental capacity, or they just don't have the resources or opportunities or extended the kindness that is necessary to lift themselves out of that life. But Yin does have that opportunity in his daughter and in friends who can support him. And, of course, in the money that was left to him <laughs> by the old man. So yeah. there is hope for him. But he also takes him upon himself, too, you know, when he realizes that Kyoko is in trouble because they gave her to Sachiko, like, you know, to go after her. He starts off from saying, you know, we're just a couple of bums. We can't do anything to being an active part of you know, finding her home, and also, you know, rescuing this kid. Yeah. 
It's really nice to see that. Mm-hmm. I will say also, though, on the casting of Gin in the dub, uh, while I did warm up to it over the course of the film, I felt it was very gravelly and garbly for a lot of the early part of it. Did you feel that way? I kind of just assumed it's because he was drunk. Well, that is also part of it. And I think the acting is really good because you definitely get that across. Like, for as grisly as his voice is, like, the fact that when he is drunk, you can tell that he's drunk. You can have an emotional range with that performance. Like, it is really solid. But it uh, did just feel a little off being that grisly. Hmm. Like, it felt a little like a character voice more than a authentic voice, at least for me. I guess, like, comparatively, yeah, but in the moment, it didn't really bother me. Yeah. I mean, it was just something that I noticed, but I think definitely improved over time as I got used to the role. I will say that Miyuki's actress was generally pretty solid as well, and she was actually a lead role in a previous G-Kids film. She was Mirai in Mirai. Oh, oh, uh, that's cool. This is also only her second major voice acting role. She was some incidentals and whatever for you, but no named character. But yeah, so she's two for two on a really big lead roles in a G-Kids dub. Now the question is, will she be in Children of the Whales? Oh, that would be interesting to see. I or not Children of the Whales, Children of the Sea, right? They're no, those are definitely two different series. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> They're too Children similar in title. Children both... of the Sea is definitely the film that is coming out. Yeah, I was like, wait, wait, I, yeah. Why, why are the names so similar? Yeah, they are different series, and only one is a theatrical feature. The other one is a show you can watch on Netflix, I think, or at least... Yeah, and has a really good manga from Viz. Yeah. I think Annalisa lettered it. Yeah, they do. But yeah, this dub in general, really strong performances, really enjoyed it. And again, in terms of the translation work, way better than what Sony did. And... Really, really happy with it. Looking forward to it coming out on home video. I definitely want to see the rest of that documentary feature for sure that, you know, again, they showed a clip of at the end. Yeah, Um, I definitely agree. I mean, overall, a really great screening. I really love the dub. Tokyo Godfathers itself is still just a great film. If you haven't seen it already, you, you really should watch it, even if it's not Christmas. Watch it in, like, April or May, or really any time of year. Watch it every month. I don't know. Just watch it. It's good. Indeed. Actually, I do want to mention my one disappointment with this film, in that there was not a whole lot of people that came out to see it. I blame the coronavirus. Unfortunately, I think we must blame that, because I think that is definitely the huge factor here in why people are not going to films as much. And it was very sad. There were only a couple other people besides us in this theater. It's definitely one of the most barren anime yeah. we've been to in a while. Usually we've been lucky to be at generally pretty packed ones. But this is one of the least impressive turnouts. I think yeah, and nothing's going to top the fact we were like the only people at the Samurai Jack Fathom events a couple of years ago where we were literally the only two people I there. I there was one of the There was point. one other person, yeah. but he was, I think, a, 
employee of the AMC. Yeah, that so makes sense. we are the only two people who paid for a ticket, I think. But, you know, you would hope that this would have gotten more attention. It's an unfortunately timed thing, but all the more reason to support the home video release when it comes out. Yeah, and yeah, definitely support the home video release and support your anime movies at theaters. Unless, like, you're in an area where it's kind of unsafe to go outside. Mm-hmm. But, thanks to G-Kids, we've been slowly getting all of Cone's films back on the theaters. Thanks to Funimation, we've got Paranoia Agent back on streaming. I think we're in a great place with Cone's works being rediscovered and re-released and made more accessible for fans to check out. And now I'm looking for, like, the final piece of the puzzle, a paprika theatrical screening to happen, and that is going to be really great. Yeah, I mean, really, this is, like, one of the best times to probably get into Satoshi Kon's works, because, really, all the major stuff from him is available now. So, whether you want to watch Paranoia Agent, Perfect Blue, Tokyo Godfathers, you name it, just, like, Go and watch it. One thing I also want to really highlight, actually, I just remembered, is that G-Kids' efforts for accurate representation didn't stop with Hana. They cast, as Hana's mother in the Hostess Club, uh, Kate Bornstein, who's also another uh, queer activist and actress. So again, they really went the extra mile to cast authentically for all the queer roles in the film. Yeah, that's Amazing. I didn't, I didn't even know that. Yeah, I just wanted to put that out there that, again, G-Kids, I think that uh, Shakina had a great quote about this in an article I read of hers that, you know, here comes Shakina to right a wrong of the past. It's kind of what G-Kids did with this film in terms of providing some more accurate, uh, authentic representation and elevated what was already, like, incredibly endearing and progressive characters to another level. Yeah, and that's really cool to see. Thank you, G-Kids. Yep, they continue to do great work, and I continue to lovingly support them and their efforts and their really great mission to bring out the best of animation to theaters and make them accessible to people. 100% agreed. G-Kids is a blessing. Indeed. And until the next blessing we receive from G-Kids. Where can the good people find you, Vlord? Oh, way too many places. But you can find me on Twitter at VLordGTZ, where I'm usually just posting about whatever I'm up to, whether that's reading manga, trying to work on various projects, watching movies, all the stuff in between. So if you're interested in what I'm doing, just check me out on there. But you can also find my more manga-focused reviews over on all-comic.com, as well as my Tsunami-focused articles and anime reviews over on TsunamiFaithful.com. But aside from that, I also host the Demon Slayer podcast, uh, which can be found on Twitter at dslayerpodcast, on Facebook at facebook.com slash demonslayerpodcast, and on the Tsunami Faithful website at tsunamifaithful.com slash Demon Slayer Podcast. And on those, we post various Demon Slayer news and updates about the podcast and so forth. And we're basically streaming on everything at this point. Anchor, Spotify, 
Apple Podcasts, you name it, we're there. So if you want to hear some people talk about Demon Slayer, both the anime and the manga, I'd highly suggest checking us out. I think we do a pretty good job. So yeah. Indeed. Definitely check them out. They're doing great work. But actually on the subject of Demon Slayer, who is that character that Kirk Tornan played? It was an unnamed Demon Slayer. Uh, I was hoping he had a major role. Nah, he didn't. It's like right when Tanjiro is fighting Rui, like initially, and right before like Tanjiro gets a gauge of how strong Rui is, this guy comes in and is like, oh, it's a small demon. I can totally take this guy. <laughs> Stand out of the way, Tanjiro. Uh, I'm going to get the promotion here. Oh, I remember this guy. Oh, yeah. That poor naive kid. As much as I am distracted by his voice, I do like seeing Corton and stuff. So I think Don Patch has ruined him for us. I mean, for us, for sure. But, <laughs> you know, always enjoy his work. Yeah, for sure. But, as for... Oh, wait. Kirk Dornan was a hand demon earlier in the series as well. Oh, yeah, he was. Oh, yeah. Yeah, not a great role. But... Back on the subject where you can find us, you can find me at Lamomiyasha on Twitter and Lamomiyasha a variety of places like Animation Revelation and Analyst, wherever there is a Lamomiyasha, that's where you can find me, and I also am writing manga reviews for all-comma.com, and we've got a lot of those coming in, so definitely look forward to more on there very regularly. But as for the show, you can find more Manga Mavericks at Movies and Manga Mavericks at Mong underscore Mavericks on Twitter, mongamavericks.tumblr.com on Tumblr, and our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash mongamavericks, where we post our content on there as well. And of course, we are on all the podcast platforms that you can think of, be it Apple Podcasts and Podbay and Spotify. You think of it, we are on it. And if you would be so kind as to leave us a rating and review, we would really appreciate it because that helps us gain more visibility and also provides us valuable feedback to help us grow and improve the show. And if you would like to send even additional feedback, you can send that our way to mangamavs at gmail.com and let us know your thoughts and comments on the show and the stuff we're talking about. What are your thoughts on Tokyo Godfathers? Did you get to see it in theaters? What did you think about the new dub? Let us know and we'll discuss it on the show. But if you want to throw some additional support our way, we Really appreciate it if you would go over to patreon.com slash manga mavericks where you have a variety of tier options where you could throw in a little bit of support and that helps us pay for hosting costs and material costs and a bunch of miscellaneous costs that we have to pay to do the show. And the more funds we get on there, the more opportunities we have to do new types of content and cover more series and more films. And we also have some bonuses on there for people who patron. If you patron at our $2 tier, you will get early access to our podcast. And at our $5 tier, we offer monthly bonus podcasts exclusive to patrons at that tier and above. 
where you know every month we will release a bonus podcast. It's very self-explanatory. And currently we are doing a series in which Colton and Doctor from the Ask Backwards Anime Podcast are going through the entirety of the Saint Seiya manga two volumes at a time, one month at a time, and discussing their thoughts. And they're doing some really great analysis of the classic series from a newcomer's perspective, going in on panel layout, sound effects, localization choices, you name it. It's a great reads-through series. And if you're a Saint Seiya fan or a newbie, you should definitely check it out by patroning to us at the $5 tier on our Patreon. And again, that's patreon.com slash manga mavericks. But I think that about does it for this episode of Manga Mavericks at Movies. And I think we will see you in the next one. Sayonara. Later. And scene.